Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 116. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our very special guest is juggler and keynote speaker, Jen Slaw. Before we talk to Jen, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. IJA, that stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. All right, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Jen Slaw. Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 116. My very special guest, Jen Slaw. Hello, Jen. Hey, Dan. Great to be here. 16 is my lucky number, my birthday. <laughs> oh, good. You're only 16? Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think I probably met you when you were about 16. Yes, yes, actually, for... exactly 16. I was just looking at uh, the, the photo that I have here of the Raspini brothers. I came to see you in Atlantic City. You and Barry were performing in 1994. I was 16. <laughs> yeah, and I think you have a picture with us, as I remember. I do, I do. You signed it to Jen, the Raspini sister. And that, that made a big impact on me. You guys were, I mean, that was really one of the first professional juggling shows I saw and it was amazing it was uh, we'll get into it I'm sure but I learned how to juggle from Jackie Erickson and he took a bunch of us to see your show and it was really inspiring and you guys were just so nice we passed clubs after the show and it was uh it made a big impact on me you know I always like to hear that I was nice like yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I, I had a, a situation recently where a fellow said 34 years ago you were rude to me and I'm like whoa how do you oh, defend yourself against that? You know, Holding so. on to something like that, bro. <laughs> I know. He goes, I'm so glad we've become friends now. I'm like, well, okay. I, don't re I can't really defend myself. I don't remember it. But uh, I always try to be nice. And I think jugglers in general, since we're sort of a niche kind of small activity, it's good that when we have a good reputation for being approachable and being friendly and always wanting to teach others how to, how to share our art forms. So. Yeah, I've always found the juggling community really welcoming, and that's been been great. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning of like how you discovered juggling. Where were you born, and uh, what did your parents do for a living? Sure. I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. My dad was in construction supervision, and my mom uh, did different things. She was raising us. One of the cool things, she served as executive director for um, the Blind Relief Fund of Philadelphia, and... Uh, I got to do some, I actually got to juggle on a cruise for the blind oh. <laughs> through, through that work and their caretakers. That was fun. <laughs> now, I know that when people are, say they're legally blind, it's yeah. a whole spectrum, right, yes. of, of sighted yeah. ability. Mm -hmm. How did you sort of uh, modify your show in a situation like that? Well, I did, I did, I was doing a lot of strolling and just sort of interacting mm -hmm. and letting people hold the juggling balls and making it more, you know, there, some physical contact. And then, of course, doing some entertainment for the sighted caretakers. And so it was a, it was kind of a mix. It was an interesting challenge. And how'd you first discover juggling? How old were you? And, uh, what was that experience like? So I learned to juggle in middle school at the Drexel Hill Middle School. Jackie Erickson, who was a recent uh, guest on your podcast, I know, was my teacher. He um, taught a program called Seminar, which was uh, an academic enrichment program. And he had learned how to juggle later in life, loved juggling, and, and taught it to us as a lesson in focus and concentration. And uh, everyone who came through Seminar had to learn how to juggle. He had a whole system of levels tests where we could graduate from one level to the next. We had juggling club in the morning. So 
there was a whole process for learning new tricks and, and then demonstrating our competency in not only tricks, but in performance and drop covers and, you know, different uh, performance styles. That was really fundamental in me learning and, and getting interested in it. And I was, I just loved it from the beginning. I had I had always danced. I started ballet when I was six. So I loved performing and juggling was just another way to to do that. And, you know, I loved figuring things out. I loved the feeling of accomplishment when something clicks, when you get the next trick. So it was really fun. And then there was always the performance element since he had that kind of set up. So that really appealed to me, you know, going to the elementary schools with the juggling club and getting to perform um, and eventually Jackie putting together the mystery jugglers and taking us, some of us out to perform professionally. My first professional paid juggling gig was at the St. Sehagamashrab Armenian Church outside of Philadelphia. I remember I got paid $50. Nice. Yeah. To do my juggling routine. I wore my pink sweatsuit, my pink high top sneakers, my side ponytail. This was probably, um, so this would have been 90, 1990, 91. I was probably 13. And uh, yeah, that was that, that was pretty cool. <laughs> it reminds me of my costume for my first professional engagement. Very pink similar. Sweatsuit. <laughs> yeah, pink sweatsuit, ponytail on the side. Yeah. You know. Now, yeah. how how old do you think kids should be when they're exposed to juggling? Do you think there's a a sort of a cutoff age? Well, I gave my son his first juggling lesson when he was one month old. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I sat him in his bouncy chair and I have some uh, crochet juggling balls and we started playing with them. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of teaching. I've done a lot of circus programs for kids over the years. And I mean, I think five or six is, is a good age to start, you know, much younger than that. It's a, it's a little tricky (laughs) with the coordination. They like to throw things, not so much catch. (laughs) That's sort of the Gatto age. I think he learned around yeah. six or so, so. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. A lot of people, I think, when they learn to juggle, that's enough. They go, okay, mm-hmm. I, I can juggle. I can do three balls. I, I'm a juggler. I can juggle. What makes you think that, what's that sort of difference to where people get in? Is it just that problem solving? Like, why do you think you took to it while some other people didn't? I think the performance element for me was really big because I loved performing and I saw that as a goal to want to create new tricks. And because I had the dance background, I always really liked the idea of combining movement with juggling. So there were there were like other elements that were playing into it. And I was just really inspired by seeing other performers from a young age who were who were doing amazing things. So that I think that was fundamental. I'm, I'm um, as Jackie had talked about on his his interview with you, he put together a series of shows called Mysteries Night of the Jugglers in the early 90s, and where he brought in, you know, professional jugglers. And so I was always like, I was like the star student that got to perform in the shows with the big, t- big name professional <laughs> jugglers, right. which was amazing because I got to meet and um, and learn from and see uh, jugglers like Air Jazz and um, Tony Duncan and Cindy Marvel from a young age and, and Michael Menez, people who were using movement and different theatrical elements and combining that with their juggling. And that really appealed to me and, and inspired me to, to keep going and to want to advance. Now, I can see how you'd be attracted to the more movement-based jugglers so it's interesting that in your career you became more of a speaker mm-hmm. but um, what do you prefer do you prefer performing silently or or being an educator well it's funny yeah I, I was always the silent one right like when I started juggling I was always the one who who would do the more dance movement focused pieces and I, one of the first pieces that I was really proud of that I created was actually um, a music box doll so I kind of was real stiff kind of robotic and I woke up it was like I was wound up woke up and then did this sort of music box juggling act where I was combining dance and movement. And I loved doing that. 
I never really predicted that I would get into speaking, but it just sort of evolved over the years. It was initially what the catalyst was getting involved with the Juggling Life charity, where I was invited to, this, this was a charity that was founded by a fifth grade teacher in Donella, New Jersey named Lou DeLauro. And uh, he used juggling and performing arts to inspire kids, to empower kids, and then to take the kids who learn how to juggle on volunteering opportunities where they were then giving back and teaching others to juggle. So he was looking for some professional jugglers to come out and, and inspire the troops and had reached out to me, just a cold reach out call. And I was intrigued by a video he sent and some of the work they were doing. So I got involved and ultimately ended up becoming the executive director of the group. But that work, you know, and, and kind of seeing the, the positive impact that juggling had on these kids, that was what led me into doing a TEDx talk, which we can talk about. But and that was really the catalyst for then ultimately doing more speaking and talking about how the process of juggling can really help us. And a lot of the principles behind juggling and just, you know, really embracing a growth mindset can really, you know, help us in life and in business. Now, when you learn juggling from from Jackie, mm -hmm. uh, at that point, were you considering a career in professional juggling or did that have to evolve? Like, because you, I know you went to school and got a degree. Uh, how does that sort of transition, like uh, the desire to be a full-time performer and uh, yep. transitioning from your, your first career choice, which I think is engineering? Yep. Yeah, I, well, I was... Um, I was always very academic, so I juggling, and I think juggling helped with that, you know, but I ended up being valedictorian of my high school class, was always really into math and science and, and just sort of um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but was juggling all along on the side, all through high school, and then college, I decided to major in engineering and art because I still had this love for the artistic side, so I went to Swarthmore College right outside of Philadelphia, um, not too far from where I grew up and uh, was able to double major in art and engineering and kind of just trying to figure out, you know, what, what do I want to do moving forward? And I thought maybe I would go into architecture at one point to kind of combine the two, but ultimately ended up going into engineering, just figured I'd give it a try. Although each year in college, I kind of questioned, is this really what I want to do? <laughs> so, so I gave it a good try. I, I went in, I moved to New York City after college and I was working as a structural engineer. My first job was actually with the New York City Parks Department, which was an amazing first job um, in New York because I got to drive a parks vehicle around the city and really got to know the city. And, and that was really neat. I got to work on some really interesting projects like the, the minor league baseball stadium in Coney Island and just some really fun projects. But along the way, and then I transitioned to um, a different engineering firm where I was making more money. You know, I was living in the city. I needed, needed a little bit more income. But I wasn't loving what I was doing. You know, I was sitting in the cubicle every day and just feeling like uh, feeling like my creativity was stifled. You know, engineering projects, it takes years, right, often to see the results of your work. And all along I was performing still and meeting entertainers in New York City who were making a living doing it. And, of course, performing, you get that immediate gratification, right, from, from a reaction from an audience member. It's so rewarding. And I really wanted to do more of that. And I just didn't feel like where I was meant to be. I felt you know, while I'm still young, before I have a family, I've got to give this performing thing a try. So I did what any rational person would do. I quit my engineering job to be a full-time professional juggler. <laughs> and I don't, I don't recommend people <laughs> do exactly that. Although I did have, um, I had a great transition period. So I had sort of strategically had some gigs in place. Vivica Gardner from New York City was, was really, um, had helped me get some, some gigs. There, I had a regular gig at FAO Schwartz where I was performing in the toy store, sort of on a regular basis and also teaching 
um, after school programs with the Big Apple Circus on a regular basis. So I had some kind of regular uh, juggling performing gigs and I quit. I resigned at a time with the engineering firm where they were really busy, loved my work, needed help. So they were really flexible and let me stay on part time for about a year. So I had, you know, 20 hours of engineering, super flexible. I'd do engineering in the morning and then I'd leave and go teach with the Big Apple Circus. So that was uh, a great transition time um, and period. And then ultimately I got laid off because they work was slowing down and they laid off all the part time people. And I was like, OK, this is it. This is the push I need to, to make a go of performing. And um, I had, you know, as I said, I had met a lot of performers and jugglers um, in New York City through the Carmine Street Jugglers. Um, I had met Tony Duncan years before at a Mysteries Night of the Jugglers, but he was in New York at the time and we started working together. And that was that was really the transition, you know, out of engineering and haven't looked back <laughs> to engineering. Now, you're not the only entertainer that uh, came out of your high school. Who do you yes. share a space on the, the Wall of Fame with? Yes, I've been put on the Wall of Fame. Tina Fey well, also went to my high school, and uh, she's on the Wall of Fame as well. So she's maybe a little little more famous than me, but uh, <laughs> it's a pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool, though. I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of yeah, both you and great. Tina Fey. Yeah. Now, you say you worked with Tony Duncan. Yep. Was it important for you to sort of start some early partnerships and work with a team before you went off on solo? What kind of shows did you and Tony do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was really helpful. And Tony um, Tony and I really developed a lot with the ball and box technique, which was my unique thing. This was probably back in middle school. I had started playing with that, with the, the cigar boxes and a stage ball and rolling the stage ball on the cigar boxes in different ways. We always use stage balls in um, the juggling club for a lot of our performances. And we also had, one of our jugglers was really into cigar boxes. So they were always cigar boxes lying around. And one day I was just kind of playing with the two of them and started rolling the ball on the box. I started coming up with some new, uh, some new tricks and somebody was like, that's pretty cool. You should develop that. And I did a little bit. But then when I started working with Tony, he saw me doing it one day, just kind of in, we were rehearsing together, practicing. And he's like, what are you doing? What is that? That is cool. That needs to be developed. And, um, and, you know, Tony is such an amazing creative juggler, developed so much of contact juggling. That's, you know, kind of really what it was, contact juggling with the ball, rolling um, and creating these sort of magnetic illusions around the boxes. So we worked together to develop that into a full uh, partner duo routine. And we started to put together some other duo routines, did a few theatrical shows together, did some cruise ships. Yeah, that was really great to... Um, to kind of help because that was at the time when I had recently left engineering and it was great to partner with someone who had experience in the performing world. And how important was the IGA to your development? I know you've been to a lot of festivals and Mm -hmm. performed there. What was your first festival and uh, how's the experience been like being at the IGA? Oh, it's been great. My first festival was 94. So I was high school. I graduated high school in 96. So um, yeah, that was, that was amazing. Um, that was the year Tony Duncan won the gold medal. I have a funny memory of going to a renegade show. I think the renegade show was like on a sh- on a cruise ship. Does that? Do you have any memory of that? Maybe. <laughs> no, no. I, you know, I've never been much on the uh, a late night guy. So okay, I've okay. not really has been to as many renegades as as others. You know, at the IGA. So my family was with me. My parents were with me. I had I have a younger sister, two yeah, sister who's two years younger, and we were at a renegade show and some guy walks out to do an act wearing nothing but a plunger. (laughs) And so so my mom was like, oh my God, what is this? (laughs) You are not going to any more Renegade shows. And I was so upset because I wanted to meet up with friends at the Renegade show the next night. And so we ended up 
I um, with Jackie and with uh, two of the other performers from the Mystery Jugglers who were at the festival, and we had the we created a little act where we were doing um, a four person passing pattern. I guess it's I think it's called a rainbow where two people are in the middle and you're passing around the people in the middle. And we wore little beanies on our heads that had um, propellers. Oh, okay. And we tried to hit the propellers while we were <laughs> passing the clubs. And we thought this would be the perfect renegade act. So we put that together so that I could attend a renegade show <laughs> because I was performing in it. <laughs> I think the renegades has gone. Uh, it's, it's sort of you never know what you're going to get. Yes. Yes. It's a little silly. And there are definitely some adult performers who push the envelope at the renegades. Yes. But it's a nice place because people can just sign up and perform and it's not as... Yeah, try new things, yep. Regimented as the other performances. Yeah, but yeah, I've attended many, many IJs over the years and it's, I love the community. I think then I, after 94, probably in the early 2000s, once I graduated college, I attended several more like Reading. Uh, that's where I won the three ball award. Buffalo, I think, and then several, a couple in Winston-Salem. I think that's where I performed in the Welcome Show that you were directing. Did uh, a three-ball act and I think my ball box act in that show. And I remember you had some good advice for me with my my three-ball act. I was using blue silicone balls. And I did a lot of tricks where I was on the ground, sitting on the ground and kind of bouncing them around my legs and through my legs. And my legs would kind of do make circles as I moved them around the balls. And you suggested that I should have blue sneakers on as well to kind of be like extra balls because the, the way the legs were moving. And so I did. I got these blue sneakers that kind of matched the balls and it, it made it sort of a fun visual. So thanks for that. <laughs> so basically, I get all the credit for your yeah. career from yes. that point yes. on. So I appreciate that. The blue sneakers did it. <laughs> and what about the competitions? Do you ever think about entering the juniors or the individuals and trying to get a stage medal? No, never, never did that. Yeah, just never, never was a priority for me. And what do your parents think about this transition? Were they supportive of, of you? And did they understand what you were doing going from engineering to entertaining? Yeah, they were always, you know, very supportive, especially my mom. I mean, she saw how much I loved it. And she always encouraged me to, you know, pursue what I was passionate about. And she saw that I was not happy in engineering. And she always says, you know, I see you using still using your degree, you know, today, because there's and I and I am, you know, I'm using all the different experiences, the experiences that I had in the corporate engineering world for a few years before I left, have now now circling back to, to when I speak to organizations, a lot of those experiences come into play. So I think it's just kind of interesting how our career paths zig and zag. And, you know, I don't think anything's wasted. I think all the all the experiences contribute to who we are and all the different skills and passions and interests can be combined in, you know, unique ways, just like a juggling pattern. Right? I think people consider you a more serious person, especially I think when you're getting into the speaker's field, when you have a degree, even though the degree is really necessarily related to your entertainment, I think it just gives you this this sort of elevated status. Do you agree with that? Yes. Yes, it does. I, I've had people sometimes with surprise. Oh, engineering. Wow. I never would have thought that. <laughs> you know. So, And it does. It just sort of elevates you a bit to, to have that degree and to know that you've gone through that training and, and that experience. So let's talk a little bit more about this transition. So you're working sure. with Tony. Uh, at what point did that sort of dissolve? And, and was there a particular reason for that just to do more solo? How, how did you sort of move then into more of a solo career? Yeah. Yeah. I wor- I've worked with a few different partners. I, Tony and I, well, and it's always, you know, you're in different places in your lives, right? To age age differences. Tony was living more in Vermont. I was in uh, New York City. I wanted to start to do more solo things. So we kind of transitioned out of that. I started to do more solo around 2008, I guess, is when I put together a full solo show that I that I did premiered at um, the Green Street Studio in Philadelphia, which was the home of Give and Take Jugglers and Greg Kennedy. 
So that was really fun to have an opportunity to perform there and, and put together my own uh, solo show that kind of combined a lot of the different routines with movement and juggling. And it was sort of based around traveling through different time periods, kind of a vintage feel and really about the music and about the movement. But yeah, then over the years, also worked with um, juggler Michael Rossman a little bit in his shows where he was doing a, a what was it, Rossman and Rose, where he had a female mm-hmm. um, assistant. So that was really fun. Michael is kind of the other. So, so it's interesting, you know, when you're working with a partner, and I'm sure, you know, you can speak to this with all the years that you and Barry work together, but finding someone who it works disposition-wise, comfort level-wise on stage in terms of how comfortable are you with being prepared, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, Rehearsal-wise, like... Like with Tony, I mean, every you know, Tony, was, everything is super well rehearsed. And I mean, he would spend years on one trick, right? Like balancing a ball on his head, right? And so, so it would take a long time before something was ready to be done on stage. With Michael Rossman, he'd go on stage, right? Like with no preparation because, and he's just amazing. And it's so fun and like the improv. And so I was kind of somewhere in the middle with my comfort level, right? And finding uh, finding someone that that worked with. Ultimately, Michael Karras and I ended up working really well together. And we started working together around two. 2011, we had been both been invited to perform um, at Lincoln Center, actually, in an opera for children called A Mall and the Night Visitors. And we were the, uh, two of the jugglers, along with um, some other jugglers from New York in the opera. And we had known each other through the IJA and other festivals and kind of admired each other's work and then performed together in this show and then started talking about creating our own show. And that led to Perfect Catch, which we premiered in 2011 at an off-Broadway theater in downtown New York City. And the subtitle of that was a Thromantic Comedy? Yes, a Thromantic Comedy. That's all Michael. (laughs) He gets credit for that. I never got to see it. Was there a storyline involved with it? Yes. So it was it was basically a story of two characters falling in love through juggling where, you know, where in in like a instead of like a Broadway play or Broadway show where emotions and story would be expressed through song and dance, you know, we express things through juggling. So it was which kind of followed these two characters as they woke up in the morning, went through their morning routine, met at work, uh, had lunch together, we juggled apples, you know, and then ultimately come together and fall in love through juggling. And I can understand putting a show like that together, but how does someone book a show like Off-Broadway? And what does it actually mean to be Off-Broadway? Well, so it's a small theater in New York. So we actually found, uh, I think Michael found this theater. It it was actually a bed and breakfast. And the owner of the bed and breakfast Kip Osborne had a small theater on the first floor of his space and he was looking for variety shows. He was really um, into ventriloquism and he loved the variety arts and he wanted to get some shows to put into his space. And I don't remember how initially we connected with him, but we met with him and it was really before we had a show, before our show existed. Uh, I think he knew that, <laughs> but mm. he came out to see each of us perform. Uh, I was performing at a place called Victorian Gardens in New York City um, in Central Park at the time. He came to see me there and, and to see Michael. He really gave us the space to create the show. So he knew kind of what each of us were bringing. We had a vision for what we wanted to create and he gave us the theater we, we came in and we created uh, the show right there in that space. And, and then it ran. Uh, we did it a couple of years, just, you know, a few weeks here and there. We did sort of a special Valentine's a weekend, you know, because of the love theme. He had a brunch in his space so that people could come and have brunch at the theater and then come and see the show. Um, and it was just a really nice fit. And then other variety artists and jugglers ended up coming into the space as well. I know Mark Hayward did a show there with, I think, Jonathan Burns, Chris McDaniel, a great variety artist. A lot of people came and ended up doing some variety shows there. So it was really a great space. 
it ended up being damaged a lot after Hurricane Sandy and never really got back up after that. So is anything off-Broadway just sort of uh, outside of that main area, and, or is it the size of the theater? Yeah, you know, that's a good good question. I don't know exactly the definition, and technically this could be off-off-Broadway. <laughs> I don't know how many offs. You know, <laughs> so I don't know exactly what those parameters are. But yeah, definitely smaller theaters, not in the main area. This was downtown in Tribeca. But we did get, you know, we got journalists from the New York Times to come and review our show and give us a great review. So that was really great for us. With Mike, you also hold a world record. Can you explain that world record and, and the development of this particular yeah. type of juggling? Yes, yeah, so... Huggling, which I know existed before Perfect Catch, but this was when I was introduced to Huggling, which, as you may know, is a combination of hugging and juggling. One of the moments where, you know, where our characters come together in the show, we huggle. We're each juggling three balls and we embrace in a hug and we're each juggling three balls behind the other person's back. And it's a really sweet, sweet moment. So we started doing more with Huggling and I had this... uh, idea to challenge myself. I had I had been a part of a group of women who were doing a 30-day dress challenge one April. This was probably 2012. So it, the challenge was to wear a dress every day for the month of April. <laughs> it's just a silly, silly, fun thing to do. And the next April, I was thinking, you know what I'm going to do this April for 30 days? I am going to challenge myself to huggle someone new every day. Someone I don't know, We'll see. I was living in New York still at the time. And uh, let's see what happens. So I made myself a free huggle sign hmm. and I would stand on the stand. I would walk <laughs> around New York and it was like, okay. it was like this crazy social experiment to see what would happen. Right? <laughs> would somebody huggle me? And a lot of people would just give me a weird look. Like, what does she want? What's she asking for? She want money? You know, what's that all about? But some people would come over and we'd chat and I would give them a huggle and I would document it. And so for 30 days, I huggled all kinds of random strangers, construction workers in New York, bellhops, uh, street vendors, random people, um, of course, family and friends that I knew as well. And then that 30 days culminated with going to the Today Show Plaza. And I got to go into the plaza while they were, while they were filming the Today Show and huggle Sarah Haynes, who was on the Today Show, and Al Roker, probably my most famous huggle. Um, so I have a great video of uh, Al Roker getting huggled in the the kind of look of <laughs> curiosity that's on his face. <laughs> now, was he, he's he sort of changed in shape over the years. Yes. Was he a bit rotund at that point? He, and could you get your arms around him? He was a bit larger. Yeah. So, I, and I kind of had to lean over a little barricade, <laughs> but mm. he leaned over and I, it was maybe a little bit more around his neck, but. <laughs> okay. That still counts, right? But yeah, so huggling just became this kind of thing. I kind of became as known as like the, the huggle lady and um, started getting other jugglers. We created Team Huggle. We went to, a few of us went to Union Square, which is a park in the middle of New York. And we we had a whole huggling day where we just huggled people all day and documented it. And then Michael and I decided it would be fun to set a couple world records. We were doing a version of Perfect Catch in Philadelphia. And we ended up going to uh, Good Day Philadelphia on so on live television, a morning show, Fox Philly. We set the huggling world record. We really weren't sure how long... <laughs> we would be able to huggle. So we estimated like, oh, we'll do like 10 minutes, you know, on the show. We ended up huggling for about, I think, 23 minutes and, and something. And we had to stop because they had to go to commercial. <laughs> so, funny. So you basically set a new record. There wasn't an existing record you were trying to break. Yes, there was no existing huggling record. No. So we, we did that through, through Record Holders Republic. We, we got a little little thing. That was fun. We then did some others at our show, like 
most people huggled in one minute. We huggled members of the audience and just kind of a fun thing to like to just share joy and connection. And it's become this thing that even now, like in the speaking work that I'm doing, it's sort of this fun differentiator. Like people remember me. Oh, yeah, you huggled me. And it's a way to be memorable. I've gotten to huggle a lot of interesting people. Um, Seth Godin, the marketer and author. Mm-hmm. Yep. The author, famous guy. Yeah, um, Penn and Teller, of course, Barry Friedman. I don't think I've huggled you, Dan. So we'll have to we'll have to fix that. <laughs> well, when I when I was young and just starting out, I, I started what they called struggling, which was a combination <laughs> of starving and juggling because yeah, yeah. it took me a while to make any money. Yeah. So. Michael and I we emceed the Juniors show in I think it was Lafayette, maybe 2014, the IJA. And uh, we did a huggle. We did a huggling act there where we while we were huggling, we also played Mary Had a Little Lamb with bells with our feet. And then I got to huggle Bob Nickerson, which was pretty, <laughs> was pretty good. Yeah, another another larger man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So if people meet you, can they they ask for a huggle? Is that is that fair to just come up to you? and? Yeah, say, sure. Like I mean, huggle, unfortunately, like there hasn't been a lot of huggling in the past three years. Physical contact has been <laughs> on the. Yeah, yeah. But I'm seeing that come around again. So that's encouraging. Let's talk a little bit about the scene around New York City. I've, you know, I've obviously been there a bunch, but I've never really spent much time there performing. So I know there's something called Monday Night Magic. Is that a, a venue you performed at? And is that currently still going? Yes. Yeah, they're still going. They went virtual uh, the past few years, but that's Monday Night Magic is the longest running off-Broadway <laughs> magic show in New York. And they each show usually has three performers and every now and then they'll have the opening act be a non-magician, a variety act. So I performed there for years. Yeah. Um, and that was a really, really fun audience to perform for. Met a lot of, a lot of really ma- amazing magicians through doing that. The producers, Michael Chow, Todd Robbins, some, some really great people. And would you do like a sort of a ambient work as well? Walk arounds and like, what's the scene out there? Is there a lot of work for jugglers? And if people want to come out there and, and move to New York, would you recommend that as a place for the jugglers could find success? I, yeah, I mean, it was a great place for me. I have since moved from New York. I, I moved um, back to Pennsylvania. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, as I said, in 2020. So I'm out of New York these days, less in touch with the scene. But during the, I would say during the 20 years, you know, I was really there from 2000 to 2020. And during that time, it was an amazing place to be for variety performers. The Bindlestiff Family Circus was really active there and and still is. And they, connecting with Keith and Stephanie, they gave me and many other performers who were, you know, trying to make it in the variety arts world, places to perform, places to try out new acts and also perform in professional variety shows. I did sort of a combination of everything, gigs, shows with, with either with partners or solo, strolling, festivals, corporate events. Michael and I have been doing the Queens County Fair for over 10 years now, which is just one of our favorite places places to go in, in, the, in the fall and do a show and started out initially doing strolling there. So a lot of performers who are starting out, I think can you can get into places in a lot of different ways, you know, and I started some places doing strolling and then um, graduated to, to doing stage shows. So it's sort of been an evolution. But yeah, it's been a great place to meet other performers and to, to have a lot of great venues to perform in and performing at Lincoln Center was really, really special. Well, one uh, New York experience you've had, which I've never had, was performing on the David Letterman show. Yes, yes. What was that like and how, how did you get that gig? Um, I got that gig through an agent, through Michael Bongar, the agent. Uh, he booked he booked a segment on Letterman called Is This Anything? So if you've seen it, what happens is a curtain goes up 
and someone is doing something interesting for, I don't know how long, a few seconds. <laughs> and then the curtain goes back down and then Dave and Paul and whoever their guest is discuss um, whether or not what they did was anything. <laughs> so, so there wasn't really a lot of, inter- for this segment, there wasn't a lot of interaction. It wasn't any interaction with Dave. And the way it was booked is I had been, um, so they proposed me to go in. I had to go in for an audition. And when I went in for the audition, I was, you know, in the studio, I did sort of everything, anything I could think of, anything crazy fun that I could think of. So I did, I did my, my three ball act where I like sit down on the ground and I juggle around my legs. So like I was talking about, and the legs are kind of going crazy and I go behind my back and it's very dynamic. So I did that, but I was like, that's probably not what they're going to pick. Right. So I did, I juggled while roller skating and hula hooping. I did some of that. I did an act where I got a couple um, volunteers and I was juggling apples and I had them eat apples. Again, another act that would not be done post COVID, <laughs> but they were eating apples from my hands while I was juggling. And that was really fun. I, I would get two guys and I would stand up on their hips kind of in a pyramid mm, and I would okay. have them eat apples <laughs> while I was juggling. So it was a really fun, fun bit. And then that was it. You know, I did the interview or did the audition and they were like, okay, we, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll get back to you. About a year went by before I heard anything. And then it was like, Okay, I got a call from Cheryl uh, at at Michael Bongar's office, and she's she says, okay, they want you to potentially to come in for t- and it's like tonight, right? You don't get a lot oh. of warning, right? <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, can you make it in into the city in time? And I'm like, what do they want me to do? You know, I did all these different things. Like, do I need to bring my roller skates? Do I need what do I need? <laughs> she's like, I'm not sure, but I think they want you to do. They said something about the three ball act. I'm like, really? That's what they want? <laughs> like the three balls? So I brought a bunch of different things. But when I got there, yep, it was like, nope, we want the three balls. We want you juggling three balls sitting down. And it was really nerve wracking because they, you know, had a video of my audition and they wanted it done like exactly the way it was on the video, which was like a year ago. (laughs) And I was like, okay, which order did I do the tricks in kind of thing, you know, trying to remember. But we got through that. They were like, all good. You know, that's what we're doing. So I was backstage. Um, I actually was talking to Paul Schaefer backstage. He came in and saw me rehearsing and he was, you know, really friendly. He was asking, he's like, oh, you know, that much must take a lot of core strength. Do you do yoga, Pilates? Because, you know, the sitting down and the moving the legs and all that. And so we were chatting about that. And then I did briefly meet Bill Murray, who was the guest. Oh, nice. Okay. Which was, yeah, that was the highlight for me. He came in and this was before my huggling days where I would have huggled him. Right. <laughs> um, but he came right up to me and just said, hey, I'm Bill. <laughs> and held out his hand, <laughs> which was a really cool moment. Um, and he, you know, encouraged me as I was going on stage. He's like, knock him dead. So that was kind of fun. And yeah, I did the act. The The curtain went up and down. I was super nervous. I had an extra ball like tucked in the, the like sort of my bra area oh, of my, <laughs> my dress because they were the silicone balls. And I was so afraid yeah. I was going to lose one. And I was glad I did. They actually told me not to do that. They said, no, don't, we don't want you to have an extra ball there, but I snuck it in there. And um, after the curtain went down, Paul and Dave were chatting about my performance and Paul was like, he totally turned on me. He was like, oh, you know. I saw that. He told her to stand up. (laughs) (laughs) He said he wanted to see the the outfit more and that you weren't giving us full value because you were just sitting down through the whole thing. Right, right. But ultimately, Dave said, well, you know, the the behind the back and the the dexterity, I believe that was something. So I got my that was something from David Letterman. Uh, And then as they cut to commercial, they cut back to a visual of me sitting on the floor. And so I whipped out the, and I think Dave did say something. Somebody said something about she was only juggling three. Hmm. So so as they cut to commercial, I was juggling four. And uh, I was like, that was a good moment. <laughs> nice. that. Yeah, that was a really fun, uh, fun experience. 
Yeah, I liked it. I saw, I just watched it before the interview and it was, I was surprised that uh, Paul kind of gave you a little harsh critique. Yes. And then the, then the costumer, they had a celebrity judge, well, who's the costumer. Yes. And she goes, I agree with Paul. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> thanks lady. <laughs> but I think that was her personality. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. She was funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that was exciting. Cause I think that's a show I, I, you know, I think being in New York was part of the, the prerequisite because they wanted you there at last minute, like you said. Yes. Yeah. So being in New York definitely had its advantages for things like that. And I've, I got to do some other, I've gotten to do some other commercials. I did one, this is also a funny story for beat Bobby Flay. The, um, so it was a yeah, promo, the, chef. the, the yeah. chef. Yeah. So it was a promo for his show beat Bobby Flay, where it's a reality show where he competes with uh, people compete to impress him, I guess. And so the call was for someone who could juggle or throw knives to come in for the audition. So I went in and they they wanted me to juggle. So I had three machetes to juggle. I said, well, I can't really throw knives, you know, at a target with any precision, but I can juggle three machetes. So I'm juggling the three knives. And uh, there's a panel of maybe like four people watching me. They're videotaping the audition. And they said, okay, great. Now, while you're juggling the three knives, can you look directly at the camera? Sure. So I'm juggling the three knives, looking directly at the camera. And then they say, okay, now um, can you can you give us a menacing look? <laughs> so now my face is pretty friendly and I'm always smiley. Like me doing a menacing look is, is not, not really going to work. So I tried to give them my best menacing look and all four of them broke out laughing. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm not getting this. And they were like, okay, that's, that's good enough. And I was like, well, wait, I can do other things like, like spin plates, right? Because it was like a kitchen themed thing. Sure. And they're like, no, no, we've seen, we've seen enough. And so I left the audition thinking, well, I didn't get that one. So then I get a call back two days later from the agent saying, well, they want you to come in for the commercial, but they want to know if you can, they don't want you to juggle. They just need to know if you can sharpen a knife and do the menacing look. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that. That's I thought I thought that was a pretty good menacing look. So they just gave. wanted me like looking at the camera yeah. for a second and sharpening the knife and that was it. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, oh, that was, you know, you it was effective. Know. I was, yeah. I wondered if you're going to do more than that, but I'm like, you know, juggle, but you know, you had a nice little moment and and you, yeah, you booked you the commercial, know. so. You never know. Yep. Yeah, you never know. I never know what exactly what they're looking for and sometimes you think you've blown it. Yeah. Yet you get the gig anyway. So you're like, "All right. Mhm. I'll, I'll take it." Well, let's talk about your transition because it seems to me at a certain point, you decided that becoming a speaker and educator was more the direction that your career would take. How did that come about? And what was that transition like? Yeah, that really came about, you know, as I mentioned briefly from doing a TEDx talk. So I, and that came about from really Barry, Barry Friedman's encouragement. And and you, I believe we had a conversation as well. And, and you had encouraged me to, you know, do more speaking and in the corporate world. But I was doing the work with the charity Juggling Life. And I had connected with some people who were running a TEDx event at the Princeton Library in New Jersey at um, Barry's encouragement. And I went to the event and was was just connecting with them and talking about their upcoming event and about the work I was doing with Juggling Life. And they were really interested and ultimately pitched the idea of me, you know, doing um, doing a talk as part of their event. And that was kind of my first speaking engagement. I mean, I had, you know, had the idea, but never really kind of figured out how to put it all together. So I did that, putting together the 18 minute talk that kind of told my story and how juggling it had a positive impact on my life and then how I was so inspired, you know, through the work juggling life was doing to see just how 
just this transformation that was possible in kids who come into the program and kind of their body language shows that they are not at all open to <laughs> learning something new. And then as they sort of walk through the step-by-step -step process, they, and they start to learn and they get excited and, you know, everything changes and it just kind of opens up a world of possibilities when they see that they can do something they, they didn't think they could. So doing that talk, there were people in the audience, of course, there was a woman from Bristol Myers Squibb, the pharmaceutical company. After the event, she said, wow, you know, this, this kind of talk would be great for my team. Do you do team building programs? Hmm. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always say yes, right? Uh, yes. Of course I do. And uh, because it was something in my mind, but I just didn't have the, um, the right opportunity yet to create something. So I, I went to work and created something for them and did a, um, a talk and a, sort of an interactive uh, team building program. And that was really the catalyst to get things started. Um, I just started creating more and taking Barry's uh, showbiz blueprint course was really fundamental in, in me learning more about the business end of things and how to market myself and how to create, you know, customized proposals that would be more effective at conveying, you know, what I could bring to, to the groups in terms of how it would benefit them. So that kind of really changed everything about how I was approaching it and just started, you know, using, using connections. I mean, uh, one of my first gigs after that was I had a connection with our local bank, just, you know, would go in and you're friendly, you talk to people, right? Talking with the, uh, the woman at the bank and ultimately made a connection through her with Investors Bank, which was a, a local bank in New Jersey, New York. And they were doing a, a conference for nonprofits to support nonprofits in the area. And I did a, a about a 15 minute talk at their nonprofit conference, just sort of a showcase um, that was an unpaid first gig. But what it did was it kind of showcased what I did. And then it led to three more gigs, nicely paid gigs through their internal training department for their staff as they were going through, you know, different changes at the bank. I was able to do some programs for them that use juggling as a metaphor to talk about, you know, navigating change, maintaining a growth mindset, being flexible, all the great metaphors that can come out of juggling. I know you also went through uh, Toastmasters. Could you explain that what that is and what the benefits are of joining Toastmasters? Sure, sure. Yeah, Toastmasters was really helpful as I started to then develop speeches. And I went through, uh, there's sort of a 10-speech a program. Um, at the time, it was called uh, Becoming a Competent Communicator. I'm not sure. I think the branding may have changed a little bit. But it's a great program because it's uh, it challenges you to create 10 talks, 10 speeches, um, about different topics. And, and so I used a lot of what I wanted to be developing for my paid work in that process. And it really helps um, the, the techniques and the lessons really help you to learn how to craft a speech, how to deliver it effectively, um, different things that go into that. So it was that's more about sort of the art and of presentation, of presenting things. And then in addition to that, I became involved with the National Speakers Association. I joined, joined that because that is a group, an association of professional speakers, authors, thought leaders, coaches who are making a living speaking and coaching. That organization focuses some, some on the art of presenting and how you craft a speech, but more on the business end of things. How do you get booked? You know, how, you know, how you're creating your fees, all, you know, establishing all of that. And that really was also super helpful in just connecting with their speakers. I ended up serving on the board of the New York City chapter of the National Speakers Association for a couple of years. So that was also a great, uh, great reason to be in New York, because that's one of the best, I think, local chapters of the National Speakers Association. I met some um, amazing people through that. As a speaker, uh, and when you go to these corporations, what are some of the uh, services you can offer? Yeah, so I do a few things. I do sort of what I call the interactive keynote. So I'm on stage presenting. It's sort of a multimedia presentation where there's slides, there's me juggling, and then there's interaction from the audience. So 
I like it best when the client decides to get juggling balls for everyone in the audience. And then there are moments that we they can all stand up and participate. And so I walk them through a, a framework really of you know, how do we embrace continuous learning and improvement? So I have a little a little four-step formula that I created called the ball method, B-A-L-L, right? Everybody likes acronyms because it makes it uh, easy to remember. And the acronym, and actually I created that when I was I was doing some TV segments on morning shows to talk about this, to talk about how juggling can, can be a have a positive impact on our lives and to have a little something sticky, right? To help remember. So it's B-A-L-L, break it down, ask for help, learn from the drops, and let it go. And it's really nice because I find those four steps like kind of enable us to talk about a lot of different things. We talk about breaking it down, right? Goal setting. There's a lot of messages of achievement and how do we break things down? A goal can be overwhelming, but we have to break it down into action steps. When you're juggling, right? You don't start with three balls. You start with one and you slowly build up, build the skills to add in a subsequent ball. And then I walk them through the process. So there it's, it's more than a metaphor, right? Because they're actually physically experiencing this process. And I find that really powerful and it kind of gives them the experience and a new vocabulary to talk about uh, some of these ideas that are, you know, we all know, we all know you have to do one thing at a time, right? Juggling is not multitasking, right? It's focus. <laughs> and so focusing on one thing at a time, asking for help, of course, then that brings in the whole collaboration piece. And there's a whole discussion about teamwork and collaboration and communication and how can we do that more effectively and uh, there's so many great juggling exercises like a side-by-side -side juggle partner juggles um, group juggles where that they can engage in to experience some of those ideas and how they can do that more effectively learn from the drops right like the drop everything podcast right it's drops are so important so i talk about you know how mistakes can lead us to, to lead us can just be stepping stones to lead us to success if we're willing to be analytical and take a look at what happened and figure out what went wrong and how we can make an adjustment for the next attempt. And, you know, all of us as jugglers know that dropping is part of the process and we have to let go and be able to, you know, be willing to take that risk. And that, of course, leads to the final, you know, let it go piece, which has several different meanings depending on, you know, who I'm talking to. And but, yeah, several levels of, you know, letting go, being willing to try, trying something new. That ball is often, as you know, probably know from teaching people to juggle, that second or third ball can be glued to your hand. Right? You have to like let it go. And just letting go of old ideas, stories that might be holding us back. So there's you know, a bigger message there. And then a lot of the times we talk about just delegating, empowering others, letting go of control so that we can empower others to do work that they're meant to do. So there's a lot of a lot of great messages that can come out of the the presentation or more of a, a deeper dive workshop. So I do that a lot where, you know, we're really then getting people juggling and we're having some debriefs about what they experienced and how that can tie into their work. And then I also do some MC work. I've started doing that a bit more leading up to COVID and then a bit more throughout COVID when I had to kind of pivot and do things virtually. I hosted a lot of online meetings. I was I was actually director of programming with the National Speakers Association, New York chapter during COVID. And I was really excited to be able to host all those in-person meetings and be the MC. And then of course COVID hit and I had to host them all virtually. Um, but it was great because it gave me great experience, you know, uh, do, using Zoom and doing things virtually and, and how to make that engaging. And yeah, that's really fun. You know, like one of my, one of my favorite events favorite events are when I can kind of combine different pieces of this. So I did one, you know, a few years back now in uh, for Genentech in San Francisco, where I was initially brought in to do 
like a 20 minute presentation as part of their conference on productivity. So how to make productivity more fun, right, through juggling. But then as we spoke, you know, in the planning stages, they sort of needed a theme. They loved the juggling theme. So it ended up where I then served as the MC for the entire day of the conference, tying, weaving things together, introducing speakers, tying it all together with this juggling theme, did a juggling workshop during their lunch hour to get people up and moving. Um, so I love that when it can be sort of multifaceted and, and bring together different different elements. I love what you said about uh, letting go from perfectionism. Uh, you have you have a quote that I saw in one of your talks where done is better than perfect. Yes. <laughs> I like that one. Yep. Yep. We all we can get caught up in perfectionism and we all know, right? Nobody's perfect. We can't do everything perfectly. We want to do the best we can, but Sometimes we just have to get it out there and get it on stage, right? Get that act on stage <laughs> and perform it and and uh, get that feedback and, and then tweak it from there. You have quite a good resume of these morning shows. How does someone go about booking those type of like Good Morning Philadelphia or the, I know you're on Good Morning Sacramento. Is that, uh, are those paid performances or are those just promotion? And how do you go about contacting them? No, those were, were not paid, just more promotion, fun, uh, Great things for the resume, right? And ex- and a great experience. Those I booked mostly through, you know, through the work that I did with Barry. And one part of his course is learning how to write a TV or podcast segment proposal. So how to, you know, sort of highlight what could you bring? You know, there's an acronym there, right? Something easy for them to put on the screen that the audience can remember. What fun message can you bring to their audience? And then, of course, it's having the context. So some are just reaching out cold, you know, with this segment proposal and um, trying to connect. You, got, you have to reach out to a bunch, right, to, to, to try to make that connection. You can do it in different ways through social media. I found, obviously, the best is through a mutual connection. That's always really helpful if you know someone who has a connection to someone. Um, I've been really fortunate in the work I've done with Barry to have some of those connections. And then just kind of sharing what it is that you can bring that's going to be fun for their morning show. A lot of these morning shows are, are several hours long, and they need <laughs> fun content, right? So um, so don't be shy about proposing something something fun to do. Yeah, they look great on your reel. And I know when it comes to uh, Showbiz Blueprint, you've gone from just being a, a student there, and now you're actually one of the coaches. Yeah, just this past fall, Barry opened it up and, and brought in five coaches to to help with the program. And that's been really fun for me just to sort of share my experience and to just see uh, performers coming in and just making huge strides in their business and, and booking better gigs, getting paid more, um, doing more of what they want to do. That's it's really rewarding to see that. So that's um, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, I see that you've built up to a, ver- a very nice, impressive fee for your services. And that's a big step up from doing the walk arounds and the you know, the smaller shows and you certainly deserve it. And that's a great direction you've gone in. Yeah. Yeah. I knew, you know, becoming a mom in 2017, you know, I knew I didn't want to work as much as many gigs every weekend and night having a child. And and that was always something that was actually part of the motivation of me leaving engineering so many years before. I mean, before I had a child, but I always knew that I wanted to be a mom. And I always knew that there was no way I was going to leave my baby and go back (laughs) to a nine to five job. (laughs) So I knew that I had to create something for myself where I would have that flexibility. And that's, it's been amazing to have that. I mean, he, he was three months old when we came with on his first, uh, first event with me up in Lake Placid. And he's, you know, seven months, I think he flew to New Orleans with me and for an event. And he came to me with, uh, with me to that uh, San Francisco gig when he was about a year old. So that's been, it's been really nice to have that flexibility to do that. And you recently got to do a performance together. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yes. So my son just turned six and 
it was actually on his well his sixth birthday we were invited to to MC the Pocono Juggle Fest, Juggling and Circus Arts Festival. Kim and Rob Laird uh, put the festival together. It's a great fest. And it was so fun because, you know, we haven't had any local festivals for the past few years. And this draws a lot of people from, you know, all over the East Coast. And so they had um, invited me to come and perform. And we talked about, oh, it'd be fun to MC the show. And Rob, I believe, had the idea that maybe performers could include their kids because a lot of us now have kids that are similar age. Michael Karras actually has a son who's just uh, just about a year younger than mine. And they were talking to him about bringing his son. He was the smart one. He left at home. Right? Hmm. No, but um, it was so fun. It was really challenging and rewarding. So I had to balance being a mom and, you know, encourage wanting to encourage my son to, you know, and his creativity, his natural curiosity, wanting him to have this stage presence, but then also my desire for order right? and like wanting things to go a certain way and uh, knowing what's happening. So that was really challenging and really fun. And he took over. I mean, I had I had a concern that maybe he would be shy and he wouldn't come out on stage and do what we had rehearsed. We had planned a little opening act where he did some takeaways, some steals with me juggling three balls and some kind of hat, hat takeaways and hat trades. And then we had several bits where he told jokes, knock, knock jokes. And uh, right. we did some other fun things like that with spinning plates. But he was not shy at all. He came out and took over the stage. <laughs> there were there were moments where, you know, it was a little difficult to rein him in. And uh, I think there was one there was one live mic, hot mic moment backstage where I was like, John Luca, get off the stage <laughs> that the audience heard. <laughs> right, right. Keeping it real. <laughs> right? but, uh, it was really fun to do that with him. And uh, hopefully there's many more experiences like that has he taken to juggling does he does he practice do you see him as the the next uh gato <laughs> he no he's not so interested he's he loves performing i think he, he's a, right. he's a showman right like he likes telling okay. the jokes he's not really into putting in the practice yet for juggling so we'll see you know it'd be great if he if he does but i don't want to force him but you know i think it's important that he learns that the basic three ball juggle you know he's got to at least learn that right of course <laughs> so, and now, you know, I'm I'm actually I'm homeschooling him. He's in kindergarten, so he's heading into first grade, and, and uh, that's been really fun. And now I see sort of a new direction. You know, I'm really excited about. We're part of a homeschooling co-op, and I've done some circus arts days with them. And I've done a lot of that in the past, but it's just I'm finding myself re-inspired to engage with young people again. You know, especially through my son, and just looking at the way the world is changing, you know, the speed at which technology is changing, changing. I feel like we don't need more focus on the tech. We need more focus on skills that will make the next generation uh, more curious, more creative, more adaptable. We don't know what the world's going to look like when they're <laughs> when they're adults. And so I'm I'm starting to think about programs that can really inspire young people again and and how through the circus arts and through juggling that can help to nurture their critical thinking skills and, and connection with each other, um, getting off their devices, right. And uh, engaging with each other in, uh, in fun ways. And that's another great uh, metaphor you can add to your, your talks with the, the whole juggling work and kids, you know, life balance. Oh yeah. Yeah. I talk about that a lot. I've done a lot of talks for women's groups and that's, you know, it's a really great metaphor. And, you know, I talk a lot about how it's, it's less about balance, I think, and more about integrating it and how can you integrate the different parts of your lives. I feel like I've, it's challenging, you know, I've been able to do it. It's, it's certainly not easy, but for me, it's most rewarding when they're integrated, like when I can bring him to an event, you know, I did an event in DC last month. And so he got to come with me and 
we went to the Smithsonian and he got to sort of have his educational experience and travel. That I think is really rewarding when I can kind of combine the two and integrate them together. Well, it sounds it sounds fantastic the way you've sort of, like I say, this evolution from uh, just uh, one of Jackie's uh, uh, protégés back in the Mr. E days and then through your different partnerships and then your work with Barry and then becoming a very successful media presence and speaker. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the, the future brings for you. Oh, thanks, Dan. Yeah, it's been a really fun journey. Yeah. And thank you so much for being a guest. That's our time here on Drop Everything. So I'd like to thank our special guest, Jen Slaw, for being on today. Well, thank you very much, Jen. All right. It went by so fast. Thanks for having me, Dan. <laughs> My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 116, my conversation with Jen Slaw. Before you go, check out juggle.org to find out information about the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Now, go out in the world. Drop everything, except when you're juggling.